hello and welcome to What's Brewing, CISFA. What's Brewing, CISFA is a podcast produced for the California Community Colleges Student Financial Aid Administrators Association. I'm your host, Dennis Schrader. I serve as the 2021-2022 CISFA past president. It's another day at the office, which means I'm a little short-staffed, and that means my co-host Dana is busy off doing other things. So it's just you and me today. Let's get this show started. And again, welcome to another episode of What's Brewing, CISFA. It's time to start with our first cup. I've already had my first two cups, I'll say. It's been a busy morning here, and now I'm into the afternoon already. And it's going to be a busy show. Probably way run a little short, and I may talk a little fast. Because uh, today was the day I started with the idea that I had meetings booked all day long. And then somebody canceled the meeting. But guess what happens when that happens? Somebody else adds another meeting to the schedule. So it ended up being a full day uh, with one more meeting to go this afternoon. So let's get started right in on the news in no particular order here other than what I was finding out on the web. <clears throat> so first off, we have a special alert from our friends at the California Student Aid Commission that came out today. And it's just a reminder that March 1st is the 2021 interest remittance deadline. And so basically what it is, it's a reminder to institutions, colleges, and universities to remit interest earned on Cal Grant funds during the 2021 calendar year. So interest accrued should be remitted to the commission by March 1st. So there's a form you have to fill out. And as it says, you know, in the Cal Grant Institutional Participation Agreement, that's the thing the school signed with the commission in order to handle Cal Grants. Annual interest earned on Cal Grant funds constitutes state funds and must be remitted to the commission on behalf of the state. Uh, and it tells you all these other wonderful details. So that special alert is number four for the calendar year already. So uh, if you've got some interest, usually it's not something a financial aid director deals with directly. But your accounting folks, for those who work in financial aid, or your district accounting folks would know what to do on this and how to return the money. On to another story here. Um, just reading in the Community College Daily about revamping short-term credential pathways, an article here, and that there's an initiative to develop short-term credentials that better serve employers and learners and has been published, uh, has uh, published a brief that highlights key elements. And this comes from, it looks like, the, the inaugural Community College Growth Engine Fund cohort uh, announced by the Education Design Lab. And it included six selected institutions. The colleges received money and hands-on support from EDL to implement a micro-pathways project that connects low-wage unemployed workers to work-relevant credentials. The idea here to lead to job opportunities. So I guess an interesting thing here, and it says here, benefits for learners and brief highlights of some key elements here. You know, having practical pathways with a clear return on investment, 
you know, flexible pathways that meet people where they are in their own journey, you know, in life and all. And the fact that, you know, learners want and need deeper and more extensive work-based learning. You know, there's some other things in here, but I'm going to let you read the article. It just does seem kind of interesting. It is something that gets talked about quite a bit on my campus. I'm certain on many other campuses, the idea of a pathway, which is generally trying to help people who have an idea of where they want to go or what they want to study, <clears throat> getting them at least focused in a broad area so that they can then go from there to focusing in on a specific degree or certificate path. And with short-term stuff, usually at the community colleges, we're talking programs that might be a year or two years long. Sometimes it might be even shorter, and that's what they're talking about here. We don't talk about it a lot in financial aid only because one of the big things is there are some limitations as far as what programs may be eligible for federal aid. Normally we say it's got to be 16 units or more. That's at least probably a year-long program. But we do have these shorter-term programs, maybe nine units, which should be maybe only three classes, maybe only 12 units, might be only four classes. And we do want to get students in the right program for what they're looking for and to make sure that when we're talking about these short-term programs that they're leading to some kind of gainful employment or a step towards having a job that maybe they come back for another degree or certificate and move their way up the ranks. So some very interesting reading going on there. Something I caught out on higheredive.com and they're a news reporting place, kind of like the Chronicle for Higher Ed and such. Uh, uh, in their dive brief from just the end of last week, uh, article titled, Students Less Likely to Attend College If They Didn't Think Their Families Could Pay. Kind of sounds like on the nose that you would expect that, but sometimes you got to put it into words. So in short here, high school students are more likely to attend college if they think their families can afford to send them, according to some new research released Wednesday last week by the National Center for Education Statistics or NCES. So here it says just 38% of 11th graders, so juniors in high school, who didn't think their families <laughs> could afford to send them to college, were enrolled in post-secondary education three years after they had graduated high school. You know, whereas comparison-wise, 58% of students who thought their families could afford to send them were enrolled in that same period of time. So it is something to take into account here that, you know, perceptions sometimes can influence students on whether, not just where they go to school, but also whether they go to school. I'll give you guys a link to this in the show notes. Looking out at the Public Policy Institute of California, uh, this is a nonpartisan research center. I think, if I remember right, they're centered out here somewhere near Pasadena where I live, um, has put out uh, a blog post, I guess a week or so ago here by a couple of their members on college admissions in an era of uncertainty. And what they're doing here is they're looking at, of course, you know, we've got a pandemic 
still rolling through. But also there's been a lot of changes at the four-year institutions as far as requirements for admissions. Uh, if you don't know, many of the schools, like the University of California system and others, have eliminated the use of standardized tests like the SAT and ACT and instead <clears throat> have expanded the number of courses that meet certain requirements, such as like math requirements, um, in order to be accepted into the schools. We used to always talk about what we call the A through G requirements for Cal State or UC admissions. And these would be a groups of A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And each group was like, say, math, critical thinking, uh, maybe... English comprehension and such. But they had different groups and you had to take a certain number of classes in each one in order to be admitted. Otherwise, those would be the students oftentimes that if they missed some of those, they would have to start at a community college and then transfer out. But you have a nice blog post in here just looking at, you know, the things that are at hand that are on the change still as far as, again, these a through G requirements, you know, things like the lack of test scores, how will that either help some or not help some get accepted to colleges and other things like that. Because we have seen decreases in enrollment across all segments, Cal States, UCs, community colleges in particular. So we're going to have to see how all this works out over these next couple of years as we work our way out of the pandemic and see if students start returning to colleges in higher numbers. I'll give you a link to this article. It's on their blog. They always they have some pretty decent other blog entries recently out here on education. Our next article comes from NASFA, where I steal a lot of their stuff. So again, I, I think we talked about maybe just last week, NASFA is inserting into their news and news feed type items, what they're calling NASFA's altitude. And as it's worded, this is a series that aims to provide a 30,000 foot view on the intersection of economics, public policy, management, and student financial aid. So Justin Drager and others, and he writes this one, that's kind of uh, very recent. He's got it titled from OK Boomer to you OK Boomer. And are the thoughts on wages and the great resignation. And so, you know, he's looking at uh, he's got a nice little chart here because we've been talking about the great resignation and other things like that. But he throws out a, a little chart from the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta and puts out there that, you know, people are not quitting, but really they're upgrading to higher paying jobs. And that's really part of what this whole great resignation really was. It was really more of a great quitting and moving on. And that also adds, you know, burnout not necessarily, not necessarily leading to resignations, uh, but there's other uh, more deeper reasons. Um, things like, you know, feeling undervalued, um, maybe just looking for a better fit people looking for uh, whole lines of different work than what they're in. But um, it is uh, some interesting thoughts he has here. And compared to most NASA articles, I have to say there's already 
quite a few comments already put in by members. So that's good to see that people are reading this. I find his writing, of course, to be very interesting overall. And it's good that we now have this kind of high-level view coming from NASFA. On a different, more lower-level view, Hugh, Fer- Hugh Ferguson, one of the reporters for NASFA, reports out that you know higher ed enrollment sees a 5.1 percent decline since the onset of the pandemic, uh, and this you know is almost a million students nationwide, about 938,000. These are numbers you know recorded from fall 2009, 2019. I'm sorry, through 2021 and are part of a new data set that came from the National Student Clearinghouse Research Center. So according to their fall 2021 current term enrollment estimates report, overall student enrollment saw a decline of 2.7%, coupled with 2.5% from the preceding fall, which shows a little bit of an extension and even worsening overall. Some nice charts here in the article, and that lead you to other information. If you don't know about the National Student Clearinghouse, they're more than just the people that you might be enro- uh, reporting your enrollment information for and to. They do a lot of research. After all, they've got significant numbers of schools that report through them enrollment and other things or use their services, and thus they're able to quantify and give us some very good deep uh, looks into what's going on nationwide in the world of enrollment and student transfers and things like that. So I'll give you a link to that NASFA story. I think before we move on to some other stories from some other sources, as I've got some stuff coming from Federal Student Aid, we'll give you a little bit of music, move ourselves on to the next part of the show. just like that we're back for what else but our second cup so fill up everybody starbucks pete's intelligentsia earth whatever your favorite coffee is and let's move on to some more articles here so according to this uh article in higher ed dive there are six higher education lawsuits to be on the lookout for and seeing where things are going. Because some of these, you know, maybe Supreme Court uh, aimed at or will uh, already there. So, you know, one of them, and this one's been out for a number of years now and has worked its way up, but the Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard University. So this is all about race-conscious college admissions. Um... This is uh, the group, Students for Fair Admissions, SFFA. They contend that Harvard unfairly considers race in admissions, which it says hurts Asian Americans' chances of attending the Ivy League school. So last year was a federal appeals court ruled in late 2020, 2020 that the university's policies did not violate the Constitution or intentionally discriminate. Uh, but in June, the Supreme Court deferred deciding on whether to take up the case. 
asking the Department of Justice to weigh in. The department has since urged the court not to review the matter, citing the federal appeals court reviewing that upheld Harvard University's policies. Um, now it says here, though, that it's so possible that the Supreme Court could accept the case. So uh, that's something to keep, uh, keep an eye out on. Now, this is one I think we talked about just last week, and now I know uh, the name of the, of the case. This is Henry et al. Uh, versus Brown University. So a group of former college students is suing 16 top-ranked colleges, including several Ivy Leagues, alleging they've been illegally colluding on financial aid formulas and driving up the price of college. You know, so federal law does allow colleges to collaborate on methodology for determining awards, but only if they're need-blind institutions. And as we talked about last week, what that means is they don't factor in a student's ability to pay when deciding whether or not to admit them for admissions to the college. So <clears throat> the lawsuit says that nine of the named schools aren't really need blind because they prioritize children, past donors or potential future donors or engage in other practices that give an advantage to wealthy applicants. So just to give you an idea, some of the schools named in this lawsuit, Yale, Georgetown, MIT, I think Northwestern, if I remember right from another article, but 16 schools here uh, are included in that lawsuit. There's some others here, some very interesting ones. Not all very, you know, that was the one that might be closely, closely related to financial aid. Others are more uh, broad scope things that we just talked about. Uh, race, and, uh, whether that's used in admissions or not. Um, also some stuff about scholarship funds coming out of looks like Alaska, but I'm going to let you read more of these on the link. I'm going to give you to this higher ed dive article. So something coming from university business daily, uh, university businesses, uh, daily news here. Students at return to college after stopping out, earn far more money. Again, something that might sound very straightforward and you could have guessed but it says, even those who go back but don't complete degrees experience better outcomes than those who remain out of post-secondary education. So, again, this comes from new research released by Kansas State University that students who come back to pursue a bachelor's degree after stopping out earn more money right after they graduate and every year thereafter. So here, um, now it could be kind of modest, it says here. So it says here, a peer-reviewed study completed by an economics professor and published in the Economics of Education Review shows the difference is, significantly, is significant. Nearly $4,300 more upon graduation and $1,100 more annually than students who, have, who would have earned if they had, did not stop attending. So kind of interesting uh, work here that they're doing and uh, some very interesting outcomes. You know, it says here, one of the things that comes out of this here is there are five potential ways for institutions to bring students back into the system, as determined by a, a couple research groups here. You know, one would be to offer certificates for credits students have earned, you know, looking back. And this is something a lot of schools are doing. Because students may have earned enough units to get a certificate, but they just kind of forget to file the paperwork. Or again, they stopped out. 
and they forgot all about it. So offering certificates for those who may have already got enough units already earned. You know, lowering financial burdens by reducing course costs. Providing workshops to students to overcome any kind of personal items that are setting them back. More robust counseling. And what they say here, setting up concierge type services. Which would be, you know, more of that one-on-one type of work we'd all like to do. But sometimes we're just a little hamstrung on having enough people in a, an approach that works for an institution of any given size, especially the larger the school can get. So I'll give you a link to this article too. Last couple things here from Federal Student Aid. We have an update, uh, an electronic announcement, updating live internet webinars for February through May on a variety of topics, everything from uh, the regular federal update, verification, professional judgment, R2-T4, one of the more fun topics for everybody, conflicting information, and then another federal update. So they're going to do one at the start in February and another one in May because there was always stuff that happens this time in spring worth talking about. For more information, you can always go out to fsatraining.ed.gov or, of course, start first at your fsapartners.ed.gov website. Last two things here from FSA. Just an update here on the IRS data retrieval tool and potentially inaccurate $1 reported adjusted gross incomes that are coming across our 2022-2023 FAFSAs. So this is an update of an electronic announcement from before, put out in September, you know, that stated that, you know, schools should instruct students and parents to obtain a record of account from the IRS to verify if the $1 value is correct if it's reported in their adjusted gross income on their FAFSA and make adjustments to the student financial aid package as needed. Um, But it says here that, however, we've been informed, as in the federal student aid people, by our partners at the IRS, that in situations where the applicant does not have a copy of their tax return as filed with the IRS, the taxpayer may contact an IRS customer service rep to request a 1722 letter or an IRS account printout. And this would serve as their tax transcript. What happened is, for some non- non-filers and some other things, there's some erroneous reporting of data that normally comes out of the IRS data system that goes into your FAFSA and throws off that adjusted gross income. And this in particular for non-filers. Kind of a very technical matter. I've bored all our non-financial aid people out there. Uh, but just to let you know, there there's an update. This is an electronic announcement, number 21-19 put out originally on September 30th and updated January 13th. And the last update for today in the news. Volume 5 of the 2021-2022 Federal Student Aid Handbook is available. Which is nice because we are halfway through the 2021-2022 academic and award year. So volume five deals with withdrawals and the return of title four funds. And so the handbook is available as a download. It's available as a digital version. If you want to just work from the website, 
but it's available. Uh, I like to download the PDFs. Because that way if I'm offline for some reason, but I can still access folders on my computer, I can get to a copy of it. But if you didn't already uh, guess by my uh, tone early on, yes, it is for the current academic year. And yes, we're halfway through it. The one thing is, though, we've talked a lot about the return of Title IV or R2-T4 on this show and other times because there has been a number of updates, including some that went into effect just last July that changed the way we handle the return of such funds when students are, when they withdraw from a semester completely. And they've been paid out their aid completely. Sometimes they don't have, they in a sense haven't earned 100% of that money. And that's what return to Title IV is all about, where we may have to return some of their money, which means getting it back from the students and return that money to federal student aid people because the student hasn't earned it all. That's the last of our news. Let's uh, take a little musical interlude here. Move our way on to last part of the show. And just like that, as music fades out, we come into our last sip segment. And what do we have on tap for today's idea of an I dare you to, which is usually where we end out our I dare uh, our last sip segments with. I'm going to say this. Uh, this is something, uh, two things I'm going to put out there. I dare you to, one, find a way to securely store your passwords and regularly review those passwords. And this is just a, a helpful hint from watching what I do myself, which I think I have good habits on, but then watching others who I see have horrendous habits. You know, the habit of either sharing the same password across multiple websites, which I guess is one of those things hackers and the such, uh, hackers and the like um, try to use against you. You know, if they can find on the dark web your uh, email and password to one thing, they may bounce it against a number of different websites to see if you are, in a sense, reusing that password at the same time at multiple sites. But the other thing is, you know, making sure that you make regular updates of those. Don't worry so much about having some website email you to say your password's out of date. I would never go back and click on that. If it comes from your bank, like Wells Fargo, you, you log into Wells Fargo either through your app where it's secure or make sure you type in Wells Fargo correctly on your browser and go in that way. Uh, again, just one little more level of security. But again, the idea here is make sure you're updating them on a regular basis. If you are using, and I highly always recommend this, using an actual app to store your passwords, and they have the ability to help create passwords for you to do so because they will make them extremely long and difficult. And if you're using most of these modern apps, I won't sell you any by name because uh, I know there's a lot of good ones out there. They'll help you create ones that you don't have to even try to remember how to use because most of these apps thus will integrate with your web browser or other things like that, or at least allow you to copy and paste. 
those passwords into whatever website or app you're logging into. Thus, you don't have to try to remember a 16 or 17 or 20 character length password. But, you know, do your work. Keep yourself secure on this end. Uh, Keep yourself from having data stolen or people accessing your stuff when you have control. And talking about control, I'm going to need to take control here of the end of the show because I got to run to another meeting here in a minute. So this is all we have time for today. Uh, In the news show of the week, we'll have another show coming up this Friday on all kinds of fun things. So I want to thank you all for joining me today on the What's Brewing Seeds for the Show. And again, if you have something to say, you have some commentary, if you live outside the United States and listen to our show, please email us at wbcisfa at gmail.com just so we know you're out there. And again, you can find this show and all What's Brewing Seasfa podcast episodes on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts app, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and the TuneIn app on your Amazon Echo by using Alexa. What's Brewing Seasfa is a production of Studio 1051 creative collaboration of me and the wonderful Dana Yarbrough. This has been episode number 154, recorded Tuesday, January 18th, 2022. Hope you all have a great day and a great week.